All right. Turn with me this morning, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We continue in our study in chapter 12, and we are contrasting the signs of the woman, the sign of the woman that we see in Revelation chapter 12, with the uh, the great red dragon that we see in verse 3. And we're on point two in our outline for the entire chapter, which is the sign of the dragon. And verse three says this, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Remember, as we study the book of Revelation, it is a book of symbols and pictures. And as you read this, it, it... brings to our minds a frightening picture. A second sign that we see that contrasts the first is this great red dragon. When we looked last time, a couple weeks back, our applications, our takeaways from this is this great red dragon is identified by Scripture itself as our arch enemy, the devil, Satan. Just remember, we talked about the fact that Satan is the enemy of the saint, that he is standing opposed to us. His desire for us is to destroy us. He plots against us. He does not want our physical well-being, our spiritual well-being. And we must engage in the battle to stand against him. Secondly, spiritual warfare is not reserved for the greatest of saints. It is not for the pastor. It is not for the elder. It is not for the deacon alone, but it is for the child of God. It is the normal part of everyday experience for the believer. If you don't believe that, I'll ask you this morning from the onset, do you ever struggle or wrestle with studying God's word, with spending time in prayer, say, well, I'm I'm good there. Then the devil's not bothering you. But we all wrestle with that. We know that. Why? Because to spend time in God's word, to spend time in prayer is to draw close to him. It highlights our sin and the need to confess our sin and to be cleansed. And that's not where the enemy wants us. The everyday normalcy of the Christian life is one of spiritual warfare as we wrestle with our own sin. Secondly, I may not want to wrestle. Thirdly, I should say, I may not want to wrestle. But Paul uses in Ephesians 6 this picture of wrestling. It is a picture of intimate or close combat. We would call it in modern vernacular hand-to-hand combat. If you're going to engage the enemy in hand-to-hand combat, it is close quarters fighting. It's personal. And for the enemy... The enemy of our souls, it is extremely personal, and he is all in. Whether we want to be or not, he is fully engaged. Fourthly, we have a biblical command and responsibility to behold. The opening word for this verse in in verse 3 of chapter 12, as as he introduces the great red dragon, is to behold. It's a command to look. It's a command to study and to understand our enemy and to deploy the armor of God. So what do we do with that? We talked about um, staying out of the devil's ditches. What are the two ditches in regard to spiritual warfare that we as believers face? Well, one is an obsession with the enemy and how dangerous that can be. The second is one of um, simply ignoring him. As in, I don't want to think about that. And for some of you, maybe this is an uncomfortable message this morning. But it's part of God's work, so we must be faithful and preach it. Amen. But but there's those two extremes. One, an an unhealthy obsession. And secondly, just ignoring it altogether. I'm not in the battle. Leave me alone. Let me do my own thing. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, or chapter 2, verse 11, We're to not be outwitted by Satan because we are not ignorant of his designs or his devices. 
if we're not to be outwitted, that must that means by by implication, we're to understand what his devices or his designs are. We need to pray that God will open our eyes to understand the nature of our enemy, to keep us in the middle of the road, if you will, and then recognize the truth that Satan is already a defeated foe. He is already judged. He was checkmated at the cross, and his final execution is pending, but it is sure, and it's coming. And the picture that unfolds in Revelation is a picture of his final desperation to do as much harm as he can to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ while he can. But I want you to know something. The fact that that Scripture writes it down for us guarantees the fact that God is sovereign over the enemy of our souls, is he not? As we will continue to study in, in our study in the book of Revelation, They will tell us very clearly about the end, the demise of the enemy. It's not up for debate. It's written. It's sure. And God is sovereign. What did we learn this morning about God's word? He will bring it to pass. So while we see this picture of a great red dragon and the frightening picture that it paints, remember, this is written to the seven churches, and this is an encouragement to the churches. This is not meant to put us in a state of fear as we walk in the Christian life. So verse three, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. This morning, we'll look at the three descriptive phrases here in verse three, and I'll make three points about those. Those points are this. Scripture gives us a picture of the character of the enemy. He is a great red dragon. Well, what does that mean? <clears throat> Secondly, the cunning of the enemy. What are his plans? What are his designs? Thirdly, the command of the enemy. He has authority that he exercises in this world, and that is important. We need to understand that when we look at the ten horns and the seven diadems. So first of all, See the character of the great enemy, point number one. And I've I've given you on our slide deck um, some of the breakdown of the original Greek so that you can can see that. Um, What is the great red dragon symbolizing or picturing? Well, solid biblical interpretation is done by doing what? Compare scripture with scripture. One of the things about the book of Revelation is you can see all sorts of fantasy that surrounds the interpretation of the book of Revelation. But as we've gone through this, we're now in chapter 12. What have we seen? Scripture interprets Scripture. And we are on safe ground when we allow Scripture to interpret itself instead of making up fanciful ideas and trying to uh, paint our own picture. So, What is the great red dragon symbolizing or picturing? We'll look at verse 9 of Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent. Mm -hmm. Who is called who? The devil devil and Satan. Is the Bible clear on who the great red dragon is picturing? Remember, it's symbolism. But here's something else that it points out in verse 9. It says, He is called the devil and Satan, and what does he do? He is the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We'll get into that as we proceed in our study, but I want you to see this. What does Scripture reveal to us about the character or the nature, if you will, of the dragon, of Satan or the devil? Well, it tells us very clearly his intent and what he does is to deceive. He is a deceiver of the whole world. Picture here is to demonstrate not that he deceives every individual in the entire world, or there would be no believers, but the power and the sway that he holds in exercising his deception on the world. 
There are systems in this world that I want to talk about this morning. But notice Revelation 13, 14. And by the signs that it, that is the second beast, is allowed to work in the presence of the beast or the first beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Who are the earth dwellers? We've talked about this as we've gone through our study. There's a, a delineation that scripture paints for us in the book of Revelation. One is the earth dweller. The other is the heaven dweller. The earth dweller is one who this is his or her home. All there is for them is here, the here and now. It's a different picture than the believer. For the believer, we are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are headed to our home, but it isn't here. But the beast deceives those who dwell on the earth. We'll see as we get to Revelation 13 in our study. Um, in the infamous mark of the beast, it's for the earth dweller. Revelation 20, verse 3, it says, And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Revelation 28, and he will come out to deceive the nations. Why is scripture telling us this? Because we need to have a healthy understanding of our enemy. He's a powerful foe to deceive the entire world in mass. It's not an easy thing to do. We're talking about substantial spiritual power here. And we need not underestimate it. We also need not overestimate it. But Scripture is giving us an honest assessment of the character of the enemy. Revelation 20.10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. <clears throat> Excuse me. It brings up, I think, some very important questions, which was how does Satan deceive the whole world? How does he do that? Well, again, we're not left to surmise on this, but I want you to see there are some very specific ways that Satan operates, and we need to understand this. Number one, the number one way that Satan uses to deceive the whole world. And I, if you guys remember, the first message that I preached on the book of Revelation was in August of 2021. I know you remember that message. <laughs> I said something in that message that, that reverberates in what we're talking about here, which is Satan has two primary means of operating. He does what? He does seduction through deception, and he does force or persecution. Those are his two primary means or tools, if you will, in his toolbox. The first one, though, and this is how he seduces through the system of religion. He uses the system of religion to corrupt the gospel. Now, Say, well, how is there a system of religion? Anybody know how many denominations there are on the planet? Somebody give me a guess. Well, that's my point. 45,000. You were close. If, if, this was a, if this was a price is right, you would be at the showcase showdown. Um, 45,000 plus denominations. What do we make of that? Well, the one and only statement that Karl Marx made that I agree with, and it's a partial quote from him, but he says, religion is the opiate of the masses. Now, he meant all religion, including Christianity. But in that little blurb that he stated, there is an element of truth. When I talk about the system of religion, what am I talking about? Um a dearly departed man that I loved and admired a great deal. My dad had a definition of religion that always stuck in my head. He said, religion is man's attempt to get to God on man's own terms and conditions. Religion is man's attempt to get to God on his own, that is man's own terms and his own conditions. What does that look like? Now, I'm not talking about pure 
religion, as we studied in the book of James, there is a difference. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If religion is the opiate of the masses, then what are we doing here this morning? Well, there's a difference, and Scripture's clear on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, I wish you would bear with me a little, with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, listen, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from what? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What is Satan's objective? As Paul outlines it here. As he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden from a pure devotion to God. His main primary objective. And guess where he operates mostly in this? He's where the gospel's being preached. But his intent is to water down, to intermingle, to corrupt pure devotion to Christ. What do we mean by that? The scripture says there is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. If your salvation is resting on faith in Jesus plus, well, I go to church every Sunday, or plus, I'm a good person, or plus, I do all these good things, then your devotion to Christ is corrupted. Satan, his whole purpose is to corrupt the gospel. And what does that look like? The delineation between genuine salvation and religion is this. Every religion, and the reason I call it a system, there are many, many different religions. They all have one thing in common. I must do something to be saved. I must do something to get to God. I must do something to be acceptable to God. Christianity stands unique in that Christ is the one who makes us acceptable to God. And resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in what he has done, what he has accomplished on our behalf, the fact that he is our righteousness, as we listened to the message last week in the great exchange, Christ takes our sinfulness on, on his own back, if you will, as the scapegoat, and he gives us his righteousness. That is unique. In all of the world of religion, Satan's design, if you will, is to lead us astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That is why doctrine is so important. Yeah, we hear doctrine divides. It does. It does. It separates the sheep from the goats. For if someone comes and proclaims, verse 4, another Jesus than the one we proclaim. Think about that. If somebody comes and proclaims another Jesus, how deceptive is Satan? Satan will give you Jesus. It's not the real one. He says, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you receive, that is, it's not the Holy Spirit that's indwelling you. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. And here's the, here's the great challenge. He says, this is to the Corinthian church, and Paul is rebuking them for this. This. He said, you put up with it readily enough. What is he saying? Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church because they put up with a mixture, a lack of pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Satan operates. He wants us to be inclusive. He wants us to be ecumenical. It's all for the greater good. Anything to water down the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and insert our own works into the mix. Whenever you hear somebody says, I am saved by grace, plus, hmm, they're, they're off to another Jesus. Scripture says we're saved by grace, what? Alone. Nothing else. 
You say, well, I walked an aisle. I made a decision. That didn't save you. You're saved by grace through faith. Yes, but I believed. Where does that faith come from? God. By grace are you saved through faith. And that, that is that faith, is not of you. Where does it come from? It's his gift. 2 Corinthians 11, just a chapter over. Paul says, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are, listen, false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And who do they work for? They're workmen. He says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters, where would Satan have to operate to disguise himself as an angel of light? Yeah. We're not talking about the deep, dark jungles of South America here. Talking about the church. He says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. How do we discern a servant of unrighteousness? If they are perverting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is very clear. He says, that's harsh. He calls them servants of Satan in the church. So Satan deceives the whole world by corrupting or attempting to corrupt the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, by convincing humanity that they do not need the gospel. What do I mean by that? One of the historic doctrines of the church that is very much under attack in our current context and time and culture and Earl mentioned last week, and if you haven't read it, Christianity and Liberalism by Macon, fantastic book. He wrote it a hundred years ago, but it is prescient because it's predicting exactly what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing with today. There is no hell anymore, everybody. Did you know that? What are the implications of the absence of hell? There are no consequences to my sin. Sin ceases to be important. It ceases to be relevant. And for those that are unforgiven, it's a blessed thought. God is not angry with me. God is a God of love. R.C. Sproul, when he was at a conference, was asked this question. God is loving and forgiving. He hates sin, but loves the sinner. So will all people go to heaven? And R.C. Sproul said, look, this is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. God doesn't send, listen to this. God does not send sin to hell. Who does he send to hell? The unrepentant sinner. Would ask you, I read this absurd article. I didn't finish it because it was that crazy. But the article was regarding Judas. Judas committed suicide because the disciples let him down. They failed in their support system for their brother. I was like, wait a minute. What did the Lord Jesus say? And if we could ask Judas about the theology of God loves everyone everywhere all the time. And by the way, we did a case study of this this morning in Ahab's family. And the judgment that God brought about Ahab and Jezebel. But what did Jesus say of Judas? That night when he broke bread and betrayed Jesus, he said, what you do, do quickly. Did Jesus say to Judas, Judas, repent now. Time is running out. Now, Judas had zero excuse for his sin, by the way. None. If anyone heard the gospel... And had opportunity to repent. Who was it? Judas. But what did Jesus say regarding Judas? Judas, it would have been better for you. What? If you had not been born. Ask Esau. 
Ask Ahab, ask Jezebel, ask everyone present at the flood, minus Noah and his family, about the theology of everyone will be saved. It's not biblical. And what has happened is we've taken, attempted to take the sting out of the wrath of God. But guess what? We can't extract those verses out of our Bibles. The God of the Old Testament who was angry with sinners is the same God of the New Testament, guess what? Who is angry with sinners. Here's his word. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not what? Do not be deceived. What is the deception here? The deception here is that I'm okay. Me and God, we're good. We got an understanding. How many times have we heard that? He lets me do my thing and I'll be all right in the end because I'm not as bad as the guy sitting next to me. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. And we're doing all sorts of things to wiggle out of that statement. But the proof is in the pudding. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The next revision of scripture will take that out because we we can't have that. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul makes it very clear, unless you are a new creature, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to sneak in. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Ephesians 5. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Verse 3 of Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, listen, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, listen, For because of these things, what happens? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Say, that's just not nice. It may not be nice, but it's true. And if we are to love our enemies and those who are opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to tell them the truth. You're not just in potential danger. The wrath of God abides on you. How do I know that? Because it used to abide on me. Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be your hard and impenitent heart, your delay in repentance, not submitting yourself to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is stacking up wrath against yourself romans 2 8 but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness there will be what wrath and fury 
We can't extract that from God's word. It is the same God in the New Testament as he is in the Old Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning with him. His character remains unchanged. But the deception of the wicked one is to tell you that you are not in peril. That you are not in danger. All is well. Does theology matter? You bet it matters. Absolutely it matters. Your soul depends on what you believe about God. It better be biblical. So here's a caution or a warning to us as believers against self-confidence. Well, the world can be deceived. The earth dwellers can be deceived, but I'm okay. Satan can't deceive me. Well, what about 1 Chronicles chapter 21? It says, and Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to do what? To number Israel. David, a man after God's own heart, was duped. And why did God tell David not to number Israel? Why? God knew that if Israel numbered themselves, they would look at the strength of their number as opposed to the enemy and say, this is, this is why we won the land of Canaan. Look at what we did. It's exactly why God told him not to number the people. And what happened as a result of David's numbering of the people? Do you remember? What was the consequence? 70,000 men of Israel died because David was duped by the enemy. So for us to sit here this morning and think, you know what? Devil can't deceive me. It's a warning. Our victory is not based on our own strength. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, excuse me, right out of the gate in talking about spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord and what? The strength of your might, the strength of your wisdom, the strength of your discernment? No, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are foolish to think that we can outwit him, that we are smart enough, that we are wise enough, that we have the street cred to beat Satan at his own game. Foolish. So why does Satan deceive? We talked about how Satan deceives. Why? Well, because the intent of Satan, the intent of his heart is what? Murder. The intent of Satan's heart is murder. Why does this matter? Because he isn't playing games and neither should we. Do you think Satan would have killed Job if Job wasn't hedged in? You think he would have? He killed his children. What did God say to Job or to to Satan? Satan answered the Lord in Job 2, verse 4, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bones, touch his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said, Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. If the Lord hadn't said he is in your hand, period, what would have happened? No doubt he would have killed Job, no doubt. And is he capable? Of course he is. Jesus tells Peter in Luke 22, Peter was pretty self-confident, wasn't he? Lord, I will never deny you. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might build your spiritual maturity. No. And he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Satan's intent is murder. And, and he's the, the scripture descri- describes him here as a red dragon. What's the import of red? Well, in Revelation 17, as we see the false church riding on the beast, 
says, I saw a woman, Revelation 17, verse 3, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. See the color scarlet repeated. What is the color scarlet, by the way? Red. It's a, it's a version of red. Why is the woman clothed in red, riding on a beast that is red? Why is the dragon described as red? Well, read on. Verse 6 of Revelation 17. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood, the martyr of Jesus, the martyrs of Jesus. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. What are Satan's desires? He was a murderer of late. No, the scripture says he was a, Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is Jesus telling us about the character of the dragon? He lies with the intent to murder. The end of his lies is the loss of life. Why does Jesus say he was a murderer from the beginning? Well, Satan's sin began with pride and moved to treachery and treason. To ascend to the throne of the Most High, what did he have to do to the Most High? He had to assassinate him. The intent, the sin that was found in Satan's heart was the desire to murder the Most High. And what has changed? What was his desire with the Lord Jesus? Remember, he tried two things with Jesus. Number one was seduction. And when that failed, what happened? He employed his second tool. Isaiah 14, 13 tells us about the intent of Satan's heart. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And this town ain't big enough for two sheriffs. That's what he said. Secondly, point number two, I will move along here. The cunning of the enemy. Scripture says he has seven heads. And the picture here is of his authority and his, tele- and, and his intelligence. I won't use the term wisdom for Satan. His cunning, his intelligence is great, but it's corrupt. It's fallen. And I can't describe it as wisdom. Because wisdom is proper application of knowledge. Satan's not wise. But he's incredibly intelligent. Picture here is a picture of the seven heads complete. Incredibly intelligent. Second Corinthians. I want here's a case example of how Satan and his intelligence works in the church. Second Corinthians chapter two, turn there. Verse 5, Paul says, now if anyone has caused pain, now just to set the table for this, this is an example of church discipline. Here was a man, and we don't know, I'm not sure if this is the man who took his father's wife or if this is someone else. But the table is set in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for an incident in the Corinthian church where someone is disciplined. And Paul talks about the pain of the sin that this caused the church. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What is Paul saying? The church executed discipline. This person was put out, punishment put on their head. They were put away from the church body. So verse seven, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. So in this scenario, church discipline worked. What is the purpose of church discipline? Reconciliation Reconciliation and restoration. It is not about the elders lowering the boom. It's not church discipline. Church discipline, you who are spiritual, restore one who falls. 
He says, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What has happened? The man has repented of his sin. Okay. And here's the situation. The church sits here and you're like, "Mm." so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Listen to this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, his schemes, or his purpose. Satan is incredibly adept at taking us to extremes. So what does he do with the church in Corinth? They discipline a man who's in open sin. Hooray. It's what the church should do. But now what happens? He repents. And what is the temptation to the church? Oh, we got to take hard line against sin. We can't let him back. So what does he do? On the one hand, the temptation is when Paul dealt with the sin to start with, they were allowing it. That's that's the one extreme. That's the one ditch. We allow open sin in the church so that we are inclusive, we're loving, we're accepting. And therefore, we let sin go undisciplined. Well, they disciplined it. That's ditch number one. Ditch number two is we're not going to forgive him. We're not going to let him back into the fellowship because we take a hard line against sin. You see how Satan works? He can get us in both directions. Matthew Henry on this says the apostle desires them to receive the person who had done wrong again into their communion, for he was aware of his fault and much afflicted under his punishment. Even sorrow for sin should not unfit for other duties and drive to despair. Not only was there danger, lest Satan should get an advantage by tempting the penitent to hard thoughts of God and religion and so drive him to despair but against the churches and the ministers of Christ by bringing an evil report upon them for being Christians unforgiving, thus making divisions and hindering the success of the ministry. In this, as in other things, wisdom is to be used, that the ministry may not be blamed for indulging sin on the one hand or for too great severity towards sinners on the other. You see how Satan works? That's how cunning he is. He finishes by saying, Satan has many plans to deceive and knows how to make bad use. Isn't that the truth? Thirdly, we see the authority of the enemy, 10 horns and seven diadems. The picture of the horn is a picture of power. Satan is a powerful foe. Picture of the seven diadems are crowns. What do we think of when we think of crowns? Kingdoms, authorities. I said Satan has two tools, seduction through deception and destruction through force of persecution. What are the two main weapons he uses to carry these out? Number one is religion. We talked about that, the system of religion. By the way, what are the two tools that Satan used in bringing Jesus to the cross? He used two. After he tempted him and failed, tried to seduce the Lord Jesus to tempt him to sin, After that, he used two distinct tools to get Jesus to the cross, to murder him. Number one was organized religion, the system of religion. Who was working against Jesus to get him to the cross? Who paid the bribe to Judas? High priest. And then secondly, who were the high priests working in tandem with? Rome. You see what Satan does. If he can't get you through seduction, he will get you through force. He used those very tools against the Lord Jesus. Now, he errs in thinking he is sovereign in the use of those tools. Because what did the disciples preach after Jesus was resurrected? You by wicked hands took and slayed him. But it was God's decree from the beginning. Here we're to understand, and and notice this. John uses and almost quotes Ezekiel 29.3. I want you to to see this. 
In Ezekiel 29.3, it says, Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, intermingled in the picture of the book of Revelation has been Exodus imagery. We've seen that as we've gone through. So why does John quote or reference a verse that is speaking about Pharaoh? In Ezekiel 29.3, he says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. It says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I want you to see John, no doubt, has Rome in mind when he writes this. Who is the kingdom that the seven churches are subject to? Rome. They're in Asia Minor. Writing to the seven churches. J.K. Beale says this, quote, yet the dragon is more than a mere metaphor for an evil kingdom. It also stands for the devil himself as he represent as the represented head of evil kingdoms, as Revelation 12, 9 and 22 make explicit. The devil is, listen to this, the devil is the force behind the wicked kingdoms who persecute God's people. As with the lamb's seven horns, so here seven heads and ten horns emphasize completeness. But it is not the completeness, but now it is the completeness of oppressive power and its worldwide effect. When Jesus was tempted in Luke chapter 4, and I promise I'm almost done, the devil took him up, verse 5 of Luke 4, the devil took him up and showed him what? All the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. Now, don't ask me how he did that. But scripture says he did. And he said this to Jesus. To you, I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God and him only shall you serve. In Revelation chapter 2, the Lord Jesus, talking to the seven churches, said this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He says, Behold, the devil will do what? He is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. How does the devil throw Christians into prison? How did he do that? Is he talking about some spiritual prison? No. But he's using what? The force of government. Now, before you before you automatically jump to the conclusion that I'm somehow anti-government, let me correct the record here. Who instituted government? God. What has Satan done with, with everything good that God has created? He has corrupted it. Look at Washington, D.C. and tell me he has not corrupted our government. Everything good, marriage, family, he's corrupted. He's tried to undermine and destroy it. If you look at Romans 13, and Romans 13 has been mispreached in our cultural context ad nauseum, and it's sickening. When people read and preach Romans 13, they're saying every government must be obeyed no matter what. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. If you read Romans 13 carefully, it is not an endorsement of the government of Rome. It is an indictment of the government of Rome. Paul is saying in Romans 13, Roman government, this is what you ought to be doing. You should be punishing evildoers and rewarding those who do good. That is God's ordained role for the government. What were they doing? They were burning Christians at the stake, using them as torches and lanterns for their gardens. Paul is not saying, Rome, you're doing great. You got my vote. No, it's it's an indictment because they they were corrupted. Government is ordained of God to bear the sword to stop and punish evildoers. You want to know why our cities are in absolute chaos across our country? Why 
businesses are shuttering and packing up and moving out of town because government will not bring the sword. There is no punishment. There's no consequence. You can walk into a store as long as you steal less than $1,000. There's no prosecution. Government is perverted. They're not doing what God ordained them to do, which is punish evil doers and reward those who do good. My point is this. Satan, as he rules as a sub-authority in this world, has corrupted that which is ordained to be good. We see it in our study in Kings. What does that mean? All is lost. Jesus refers to Satan many times as a prince of this world. Who's the king? You say, well, why does God allow this to go on? Because God is using even the enemy to accomplish his redemptive purposes. What you meant, as Joseph said to his wicked brothers who sold him into slavery, what you meant for my evil, what? God meant for my good. Satan means us evil. But was Job better off after he was tested by the wicked one than he was before? Answer me that. Was he a better man? Now, the scripture says he was a just and upright man. But was was he greater in his sanctification, greater in his maturity after the enemy tried to sift him? Yes. So who is sovereign in that whole picture of Job and Satan? Not Satan, God. So as we close this morning, I want to give you some application to take home. Number one, Satan, the great dragon, is a great deceiver. He is far more powerful than you or I. And the reason we're warned about this, so so that we do not rest in our own wisdom and our own strength, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is what? Greater than he who is in the world. Secondly, our great weapon is in resisting the devil and his temptation is submission to God's word. Why do I say it that way? When Jesus was tempted of the enemy, what did he do? He said, it is written. You say, well, all I have to do when Satan tempts me is open my Bible and spout scripture at him and rebuke him and he'll be gone. It's not what scripture says. That's a component, but we're missing something very, very important. Jesus said in John 14, 30, I will no longer talk with you much for the ruler of this world is coming. But listen, he has no claim on me. Why did Jesus say Satan has no claim on him? Did Jesus have any sin? He was sinless. Satan had no authority, no power, no sway, no claim over the Lord Jesus because he was sinless. What did Jesus do when he was giving Satan scripture and declaring the word of God? While he was declaring the word of God, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the word of God. And in our struggle with the enemy, we can we can spout scripture all day long. Does he know it cover to cover? He knows every word far better than we do. The answer to spiritual warfare is not spouting scripture. Yes, we need to hide it in our hearts so the Holy Spirit will bring it to bear when we need it. It's the sword and spirit, but it does us no good if we're not obedient to it. The third thing is we have a great high priest. The great high priest we have, the Lord Jesus, was tempted and never failed. And we must run to the throne of grace with boldness, the scripture says, Hebrews chapter 4, to get grace and mercy and help. Because guess what? When the devil tempts us, we fail. We do not always win that battle. As believers, we should take heart that Jesus stared down the barrel of every tactic of Satan. In all of Satan's perverted and wicked mind, all that he could muster, there was seduction. He tempted Jesus in his hunger. In Luke 4, he tempted Jesus in his hunger to doubt the provision of the Father. 
That is the primary temptation that he gets all of us with. Think about that. When the stomach starts growling and you smell the chili and we think, God's not meeting my needs. Are you going to die because lunch is a little late? Well, we might feel like it. Some of the kids are thinking I'm about to. No, but we confuse needs and wants, don't we? Yeah. And when, when God denies our wants, we often come away with the lie that the wicked one sows, which is God is denying your needs and you deserve it. I deserve to eat. I could turn that bread or those stones into bread and I could eat right now. And that's how Satan tempted the Lord Jesus. And that's how he gets us. We doubt the provision of the Father. He doesn't really love you that much. He tempted Jesus in his hunger to doubt the provision of of the Father. He tempted Jesus to obtain his kingdom the easy way. When he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said, Jesus, you don't need to sit at the right hand of that one. You can sit at my right hand. And I'll make it the obtaining of the kingdoms of the world easy for you. What did Jesus do? He went the hard way. He went to the cross. Satan's temptation to Jesus was, you know, Jesus, this cup can pass from you. You don't have to drink it. You don't have to drink the wrath of the Father to the bottom. All you got to do is bow down. You can sit at my right hand and all these kingdoms, they report to you. He tried to seduce them. Then there was the occasion to to provoke the father. What is he telling Jesus? Jesus, the father doesn't love you. Throw yourself down and see if he lifts you up with his angels. That all didn't work. And when the Lord Jesus resisted him, Satan went away, a defeated enemy. But he wasn't done. After he tried seduction, he tried destruction. In John chapter 13, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, you turn over to the synoptic gospel of Luke 21. It says, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot. And why did Satan enter Judas? It doesn't say one of Satan's demons entered Judas. It said Satan entered Judas. Why? Well, yes, he was absolutely fulfilling scripture. But what was Satan's intent? I am going to make sure personally that Judas gets to the high priest without any interruption that he gets that 30 pieces of silver and that he betrays the Lord Jesus so that the high priest and Pilate can do with Jesus what I want them to do. And what did he want? He wanted the ending of Jesus, his destruction. Hebrews 4, and I leave you with this this morning to encourage you. Because our great high priest did not succumb to the seduction of the enemy. Our great high priest did not succumb to the fear of destruction from the enemy. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the biggest lies the devil will tell you is you're struggling with this temptation. You can't take it to God. You should be ashamed of yourself. Stay away from them. Don't go near the throne. You can't bring that temptation and ask for help. God's ashamed of you. That's how Satan works. He's the accuser of the brethren. When we are tempted and we are failing, what does the high priest tell us to do? Come to the throne of grace. And he doesn't say whimper. He doesn't say crawl. 
What does he say? Come boldly. Why? Because you belong at the throne of grace. You have a place there because the great high priest has made that so. Man, we suffer because we don't go to the throne. What a great deception that is of the enemy. I would encourage you this morning, go to the throne. The Lord Jesus knows our weaknesses. He knows our struggles. And he will give us grace. And when we're cleansed of our sin, guess what? We can say, Satan, you have no part in me. You know, we talk about the holiness of God. This is an often neglected aspect of the holiness of God. When Satan recognizes the holiness of God in you, and has no part in you, you know something's different. And how do, what do we do with our sin? Satan would love to keep us away from the throne so that that sin is unconfessed. It's unrepented of, it's undealt with. But he has no place with you. If we confess our sin, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Spiritual warfare deals with that truth right there. We must deal with our sin. And Satan has no part in us. Then we can resist him and what? What does he do? 